So we celebrate the awakening of our great original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, this uh, Indian man who lived more than 2,000 years ago, who uh, was known as Gotama Siddhartha. That was his name. He was brought up, raised with. And um, there's many different angles uh, to the story about the awakening experience that led this person called Gotama Siddhartha to become known as Buddha, which means one who is awake. Uh, the particular part of the story that I would really love to share with you tonight is his last long night when he sat under the Bodhi tree and put his deep soul questions to the great vast universe through what's called the teaching of the four watches of the night. Now, of course, this is a story. It's a mythical story. It's a story of mythical dimension. Uh, you know, we weren't there. They didn't have video cameras back then. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know how long it really took for Gautama Siddhartha to formulate the teachings that became known as Buddhism. But what we do know is that this person who was very real and just like you and just like I uh, put himself into the position of taking his seat and opening himself to um, receive the teachings of uh, this way, which emphasizes present moment awareness. That is what Buddha means, being awake in this body at this moment in this life. So um, before, however, I tell the story of Buddha tonight, the night where he awakened, I have to go back in time and tell a little sub story about when he was a child, because it's an important part of the story of the adult man. So he was the son of a prince, a man who had, you know, a, a land and had a palace and all that kind of stuff. And one time the father took the boy out into the field with him when his, uh, the threshing, the plowing was happening out in the field. They were harvesting some grain. And so they just kind of left the little fellow alone, you know, maybe he was six or seven or something. And so he was just sitting out there in the field and he saw as the plow was going through the field and he saw the big metal blades cutting through the earth and, 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 you know, doing this work of harvesting the grain, he saw that all these little insects were losing their lives as this was happening. Because of course, this is part of the great wheel of life is birth and death. So he saw that to give the life to him and his father and their family and their people, the gift of grain, that there was this life that was also being lost, all these little squirming insects. And according to the story, he felt as sad and despondent as if he was seeing his very own family being killed. And at the same moment that this deep compassion was aching in his heart, at the same moment, he felt the cool breeze from the rose apple tree that he was sitting under, the shade and the delicate breeze and the coolness of the rose apple tree uh, wind brought him such joy. And his heart, which had been opened with 
compassion for the suffering of the world at the same moment was filled with this peaceful, peaceful, cool, calm, just the joy of just being alive, being alive on the planet in a body um, and just feeling refreshed by the wind. So the reason why this story is important is because if we fast forward to uh, his life as an adult, um, very, very quick little synopsis. You probably all know the story, but since I'm in storyteller mode, I'll tell a little bit of it again. You know, he, he was kept by his father in the palace, protected from seeing the suffering of the world. But of course, as we are wont to do, especially in our adolescence, we peek over the walls and he did that and he saw the, the suffering of the world. And to make a long story short, he left the palace. He left his privileged life and he walked out into the world to really try to understand what is this suffering, this human suffering, and how is it possible to be liberated from this suffering? So at that time, um, as, as we know, the, the main practices of the time, the holy people of the time were very much into trying to get out of the body. Uh, you know, they, they starved themselves. They didn't sleep. They didn't wash. It was like the, the, the body is the burden. We need to free ourselves from the body. And if we can just, you know, mortify it sufficiently, we'll be liberated into the higher realms of spiritual awakening. So he was an adept. He did all the practices for seven years, they say. He was very good at it, but he still wasn't experiencing the answer to his question about, but what is really the source of our human suffering and what can we do to be liberated from this suffering? There's got to be another way. This young man, after seven years of diligent practice, of mortification of his flesh. There's got to be another way, he thought. And at that time, he recalled when he was a little boy and he sat under the rose apple tree and his heart was opened with compassion for his fellow beings. And at the same moment, he felt the deep joy of the coolness of the breeze, the coolness of Nibbana or Nirvana, which is the... uh extinguishing of desire for things to be different. It's the releasing of the grasping mind so that we're just allowed to be in the cool rose apple tree breeze of the present moment. He remembered that and he thought, well, you know, when I was a little kid, I hadn't been starving myself and I hadn't been doing all this yoga and I hadn't been trying to rid myself of, of my fleshly body. I had this natural, spontaneous experience of Nibbana. And so he thought, you know, if I could do that when I was a little kid, it must be a natural part of the human condition. This ability to release the mind of suffering and to open to the cool wind of the present moment when we relieve ourselves of the burden of the suffering mind. And so... He, he was inspired by his own practice as an innocent young child. Uh, he decided, you know, I think this is, I have a hunch that, um, instead of trying to use my yoga to be like an assault on my human nature, could it instead be something that 
we could use, that I could explore, that could be something that where we would cultivate our innate tendency to be able to release the mind and to be able to experience liberation. So this is where, you know, the myth and the history, it's kind of interesting. There's this wonderful book, uh, biology, uh, biology biography kind of, of the Buddha by uh, Karen Armstrong, who she's not a Buddhist, but she's a religious scholar. And it's, I really recommend this book. It's just, I think it's just called The Buddha by Karen Armstrong. Beautiful, uh, the, the story of the Buddha's life told from this kind of, uh, you know, uh, from the perspective of a religious scholar. And um, she points out something that I think is quite interesting that, you know, in the myth, the story is that it all happened like really fast. Like he had that, ex- he had that experience of going, wow, there's got to be a better way. And then he remembered when he was a kid and then boom, he re- went right away, sat down under the Bodhi tree and all night sat. And then in the morning he was awakened. And she says, you know, maybe that took weeks. <laughs> maybe that took months. <laughs> you know, we don't really know. And, and, and I believe we do not have to know because we don't need facts that aren't available to us to validate the truth of our mythological origin story. The truth of that story is validated in how we resonate with that story and how we identify with the Buddha and how for more than 2000 years, his teachings have inspired millions of people around the world. That's the validation of the story. So I say that right before I dive into telling the story as if it all happened in one night. And maybe it did. We'll never know. But the story of that uh, last long night uh, that preceded his awakening is the story now that I want to uh, turn turn our attention to. So he took he took his seat near the Naranjara River, on and this, these are words from the ancient texts on an agreeable plot of land, a pleasant grove, a sparkling river with smooth banks, and nearby a village whose inhabitants would feed him. That's interesting. I thought he was up alone on a mountaintop. Guess he was in a nice, pleasant grove by the sparkling river with smooth banks. That's where he found his seat. That's where he took his seat under the tree. Now, in in a lot of salvation stories, what Karen Armstrong calls salvation stories, the tree and the spot is very, 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 a very potent part of the story. The, the tree of life, the place where our human, grounded human life touches the absolute, where the relative and the absolute connect is where we sit when we are a Buddha, when we are one who really wants to wake up. So I would say to you that you right now could imagine that in your own humble home, on your own Zafu or chair, that you are taking, you, you take your seat right now as you open yourself, as you open your heart to consider the example of Gautama Siddhartha and his four watches of the night. Now there's parts of the story I'm not going to tell, which are very exciting, like his encounters with Mara. Sorry, not going to talk about Mara tonight. That's a great talk, but that's not tonight. You know, basically he was tested. 
you know, and whether you think of Mara as this, you know, outside kind of demon creature that came to torture the aspiring Buddha, or whether you consider that it was his own fear and shame and self-judgment that he projected out, and he had this testing in all these different ways by this um, by this other. Either way, he was tested as he should have been tested with the um, with what he had set out to to do. He should have been tested, and he was. And then they then there's the story of the four watches of the night. Now, one of the things I love about this way of thinking about it is I don't know if you've ever stayed up all night. I don't know if you've ever stayed up all night with a pressing question or with a, a vexing life issue. But I love the the thought of him sitting out there by the river and the first watch of the night when the sun goes down and maybe his mind is agitated with his thinking and he's wondering what's going to happen. And then it gets darker and then maybe the little crickets and the little night birds start singing and then moving on towards midnight into the second watch of the night. When by then it's completely dark. There's no more light. It's only the creatures of the deep night that, that one can hear. Or maybe it's just very, very, very silent. The stars are out in their full array. And you get to that feeling of the depth of the night. And then the third watch of the night, say from midnight to about 3 a.m., that's when it can be really deep and really dark and really intense. And then there's the release the light starts to come back, the fourth watch of the night that ends with the dawn. So the story goes that in the first watch of the night, Gotama experienced all his past lives. Now, whether you believe in reincarnation and think of this as literal, or whether you imagine him just running over in his mind all of the different people that he had known, the people that he had been, his ancestors, his own original ancestors. He saw himself going through all of these different names and forms and relations. And as he was, as this human drama was unfolding in his imagination, in his, in his spiritual mind, he had this, um, insight of how unending this human drama is. Again and again, he said, they must leave the people that they regard as their own and they must go on elsewhere. Surely this world is unprotected and helpless like a wheel that goes round and round. I find this happens as I get older. It starts to feel like many, many lives. You know, when I was 12, I thought I was pretty hot stuff, you know. And when I was 25, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. <laughs> but after you go through, you know, cycle after cycle, decade after decade, you start going, wow, I have lived so many lives. People who were gone, people who I'll never see again. And then uh, for Buddha, for Gautama, he recognized that this is, um, we're all in this together. There's no escape. This experience of the first watch of the night, it obliterated 
any sense that he had of being a substantial, unchanging self. And just think about that in your own life, even if we're not looking at the mystical, big spiritual story of the Buddha seeing all his past lives. Just feel into your very own life and allow yourself maybe to have a little bit of that sense of how it all changes. There's nothing substantial to hold on to. We share the same joys. We share the same sorrows. So he also lost any sense of separation with all of the suffering beings of the world by allowing himself to fully feel all of the human drama of his own life and his past lives. You could imagine past lives also as the lives of your ancestors. Feel into what you know about your parents, about their siblings, about their parents, about their siblings, about your people, your, the culture that your people came from, what your, what your lineage has, has experienced. This ability to feel ourselves as part of this ever changing round and round flow, not as a sub- substantial self, but with big open hearts, knowing that we all share the same joys and we all share the same sorrows. That's my understanding of the first watch of the night. So now the stars are all out. Maybe the crickets have stopped singing. Maybe there's an owl or whatever kind of night birds they had hooting down by the the river. And in the second watch of the night, um, so he started, you know, this feeling from the personal, you know, of his own life and his own past lives. So in the second watch of the night, he actually opened up his awareness to take in all of the creatures of the universe. He just kept expanding his awareness. First, he thought about the little microbes and the little bugs, like the bugs that he had had that awakening experience with when he was a little boy. And then he went into the animal realm And then he thought about the human realm. And then in Buddhist cosmology, there's other realms. I don't know if these were already in existence in the times in the Indian religions or not. I think they probably were the, you know, the hungry ghost realm, the fighting Titans, the heavenly realm, the, uh, uh, well, anyhow, there's a couple more. Um, Hold on. Sorry. I did write it down because I don't always remember these things. Um, I'm sorry. I'm not remembering all the realms. But anyhow, he, his consciousness just kept expanding and expanding and including more and more and more until he had this experience of all of the creatures of the world having awareness. Now, it varies. Obviously, the awareness of a little sow bug is different than the awareness of an elephant and is different than the awareness of a human. And if you're believing in the kind of big mythical realms, it's different maybe than the awareness of a hungry ghost. But every being has awareness and sensitivity. And we're all caught up in this, in the cause and effect laws of the universe. None of us escape from that. All of our actions have consequences and we are impacted by the, in, by the actions of others. And we all are born and we all die. 
So building on that insight from the first watch of the night of impermanence and all being in the same boat, he expanded that to include all of the beings and all of the creatures of the universe. So the second uh, watch of the night. And then in the third watch of the night, now it's the deep, deep, deep night. Maybe the stars are just so brilliant. You know that feeling when you just look, I mean, you're just awestruck by them. And they just fill your whole body and your whole mind. And in the third watch of the night, he saw how not only we're all in the same boat, impacted by the same cycles of cause and effect and birth and death, but we're completely interconnected in a web of relationship. We are each other's food. The trees breathe out and we breathe in. We impact each other's lives with the choices we make. Everything, everything in the world, completely, completely interdependent, like this big, big net. And they say that um, this was his um, recognition of the law of interdependent co-origination. We all create each other. We all impact each other. This is the core teaching underneath what later on a little bit in the Mahayana in starting, I think, in the third century, this became the story of Indra's net, which so many of us just love. And it's also the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is a very thick book that very psychedelically describes this experience that that the Buddha had. Um, but this idea that the universe is this vast net and all the strands of the net are all of the ways that we're related and that we're each a jewel in the node of where the strands cross. Each an individual jewel radiating our own light and then reflecting all of the lights of all of the other jewels. I can imagine him sitting in the third watch of the night surrounded by all the stars and the river and already having had this experience of intimacy with his own life, intimacy with all the beings to look out and to have this continued expansion of his awareness to, to recognize the interdependent nature of all of our lives. And they say that that was the watch of the night where out of that experience, he articulated the four noble truths, the eightfold path and the twelvefold chain. So I'm not going to go into what those are. Some of you know them very well. If you don't, it's good Buddhism 1A and everybody should study it. But basically, you know, the Four Noble Truths pointing out that how we use our minds has everything to do with how much we're going to suffer. And studying the cause of the ways that we create suffering for ourselves is at the very root of also recognizing liberation. And then the Eightfold Path being wholesome practices to um, put into our lives if we want to cultivate uh, having a, the kind of life in which we can experience more ease and and liberation and be more helpful to others. And then, of course, the 12-fold chain, the intimate relationship between all of the minute little links of cause and effect. So those teachings, which we study to this very day and which help us in our very lives they, the story is that this is what emerged for him in the third watch of the night after kind of having these other experiences. The, um, the insights that when he finally did 
go out back into the marketplace. Those were some of the very first things that he began teaching when his friends approached him after his awakening and said, oh my God, what happened to you? The, that's what he then began to teach. So then now it's maybe, you know, it's that part of the deep, deep night where all of a sudden you realize there's a little tiny bit of light and some of the stars start fading a little bit and you start noticing that around the rim of the horizon, there's a little rosy glow that's starting to happen and you get that feeling inside you of, oh, here it comes. I'm the day, you know, the dawn is coming. And this, a beautiful story, of course, that, that at that moment he looked up and there was the, the morning star. There was Venus on the horizon. And having gone through this, this whole, you know, beautiful, deep process of recognition, it was just completely, completely clear to him that I and all beings are simultaneously awakening to the way. He was not a separate self. It was not, I have awakened, I have attained something. It was like, it's all happening. We're all doing it together. And I and all beings and the great earth are all awakening to the way. And that is what they call the great lion's roar that Patrick so beautifully enacted about half an hour ago during our Buddha's awakening ceremony. That is the statement of his, what we call his awakening, which really was a recognition, just a recognition that he just felt in his whole being. He was no longer a separate self. He had let himself be truly intimate with all that he had ever been, with the communality of all beings, and even including cosmic interdependence. So that was his awakening. It's a grand story, but it's also a human story. Because this is, of course, the beauty of, of, I think, what attracts a lot of us to the Buddha way is that it's not about special states and it's not about special scriptures and it's not about going outside of who we are and becoming somebody else. It's about actually the opposite. It's about becoming completely and fully grounded in the reality of who we are and being open to knowing each other as the beings that we really are. So I'm wondering, as I've been sharing this story, um, after we have some announcements in a few minutes, if you're interested in sticking around, I'd be very curious about um, how does this story resonate with your life? I really invite you to think of this as not a story in a book over there by somebody who was this you know, unattainable person, but this is you. This is us. That's what Buddha told us that, you know, when he was dying and his, and his, and his disciples were moaning and groaning and, oh no, what are we going to do teacher? You're leaving us, you know, and you're the one, you're the one who makes it all work for us. And he says, have I taught you nothing? It's not about me. It's about you. It's about what you do with your life. That's how my teaching is verified. And by practicing these teachings, that's what keeps this alive, not some 
you know, person over here who's making it happen for you. So I'm curious, this kind of mythical, special kind of story that we tell in our tradition at this time of year, how, how does this resonate with your life? And that might be a starting point that we might have for, for some discussion. Uh, and of course, anything else that is alive for you um, in your mind or heart or body as we're sitting here together. So maybe we could just take one moment and just um, look around, just look at each other for a minute. Look at our fellow beings here. Some beings who just sat for seven days. Some of us are, yeah, just just being with each other for a minute. Thank you so much. May any inspiration or... Um, helpful insight that may have been sparked by sharing these words of this ancient story. May this, um, may you take it with you and carry it with you out as you um, share Buddha's way in your own way in the world. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.